Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I'm your host today, Dave Sedia, and we are joined by our panelist, Lucas Rias. Hello, everybody. As a guest on the show, we have Jamin Holmgren. Hey, everybody. A few years ago at a JavaScript conference, I was approached by Nader Dabit, and you might know him from the React Native Radio podcast. He's also a developer evangelist for Amazon. And when he came to me, we had a conversation about React Native. And the thing that I love about React Native is that it's approachable, it's web technology, and it's cross-platform. And it makes a lot of things really easy for developers to jump in and do interesting things on mobile with JavaScript. So we've had this show now running for several years, React Native Radio, where we interview people about the React Native ecosystem, some of the things that are coming out in React and how they affect mobile, and other options that you have for mobile development. So if you're doing mobile development, you're doing it in JavaScript, you're looking for a good option, or maybe you're just trying to stay current with React Native, then go check out React Native Radio at reactnativeradio.com. So Jamin, could you tell us a little bit about your background and where you're from and everything? Yeah, totally. So I live near Portland, Oregon uh, with my wife and four kids. Uh, we live kind of on, I think, about three acres near a vineyard. So I'm kind of, nice. yeah, I'm kind of out of the city a little bit, uh, but about a half hour drive from Portland. And I'm the uh, CTO and one of the founders of Infinite Red. We're a consultancy, about 30 people now spread all across the US. We're all remote. I'm currently in my little home office here. And we mostly build mobile apps, design and build mobile apps. So we basically have four teams. We, we have a design team that focuses on you know, software design. We have a front-end team. We used to kind of split things up web and mobile. And now it's more like front-end, back-end because we do React and React Native. So our front-end team does both React Web and React Native Mobile. And then we have a back-end team that does a variety of technologies. And then we also have a fourth team now that's doing AI and ML. That's led by my business partner, Gantla board. So that's kind of kind of new. That's about a year old, uh, but we're starting to push into the AI ML space. And I've been doing this a while. I started coding when I was 12, just like QBasic and making games and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Gorilla.bass. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Oh, I found, okay. I've found my tribe here. This is awesome. <laughs> So I did that for years, you know, as a teenager. And then, um, I mean, I'm 37, so we didn't have like the internet back then or anything like that. So I had to kind of make up my own games. And then later on, I uh, did a little bit of like visual VBA, you know, like for Microsoft Excel and, and access applications for different businesses. And then I eventually started my own business, went through a whole lot of different things uh, for 10 years, but eventually merged with another company to become Infinite Red about four years ago. Almost exactly four years ago. I think it's, uh, it's coming up on it. So uh, it's really been quite a long journey for me, but it's been really interesting. I've mostly done for my professional career web for the first part and then uh, more, more mobile technologies lately. I'm also very ac- active in open source. I'm on the React Native core team on the open source side, and I'm uh, active in our open source, which is like Ignite and Reactatron and a few other a few other names that, that people might recognize uh, if, they, if they're into React Native specifically. And then I also organize, help organize uh, Chain React, which is a React Native conference here in Portland, Oregon, every year and generally in July, although we're potentially going to move it next year in 2020. So first thing, something is not summing up. Your day have much more than 24 hours, right? Because you just <laughs> told us you have four kids. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I stay pretty busy. (laughs) I'm lucky, though, to have two really amazing uh, business partners, Todd Worth and and Gantt Laborde, who are 
really great at kind of taking a lot of the load off of my plate when I'm doing other things. I have a great team behind me on, with Infinite Red. A lot of seniors, so like they don't need a lot of handholding when it comes to you know day to day management. That's actually pretty minimal. And then Chain React is mostly me kind of supporting. So I'm I'm involved in a lot of different things, but uh, but I can kind of pick and choose my spots, which is I'm kind of lucky to be in that position. It does sound like a lot though when I list it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. nice. We had Gant in the in the show, and it was a good episode. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he's awesome. He's a great guy. I'm really, really happy to be a, a partner with him. Nice. Let's jump into the your React Fill-in uh, presentation. Yeah. So, and it has a, a lot to do with what we just talked now about doing multiple things. You're talking about the boilerplate generate, generator, right? You have this That's React right. Nate, and you were talking about like generating a community Right. which in in a way is about scaling the power of everything related to that tool and those people involved. Right. So, yeah, I would love to 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 talk about maybe talk about the, the tool first. What's what yeah. is the actual tool that you're building a community around? Yeah, totally. So, the tool is called Ignite and essentially it's a tool in more or less two parts. Uh there's a CLI which allows you to like type in ignite new my app, right? Mm-hmm. And then it will walk you through. It has a series of questions. Um, generally speaking, we've kept the questions fairly, you know, fairly focused. But things like React Native app, there's a library called Detox that allows you to do kind of end-to-end testing, and it asks you, you know, do you want Detox? And then it'll install it for you. And what it does is it essentially sets up a boilerplate. That's the second part of this, and you can choose the boilerplate you want to use. There's the original uh, called Andros. They're all named after kind of video game uh, villains. And so the second one's called Bowser. And that's the current one. And so Andros uh, had, you know, like had um, like Redux and Redux sagas as its state management system. Uh, it, uh, it had a whole bunch of different decisions. This was how we were, Infinite Red was building React Native apps at the time. And that's sort of a common theme through this whole thing. Like something won't make it into the boilerplate unless we actually have already used it on a client app in at infinite red. So you can be sure that whatever we've done, we've, we've tested and it, and it works out like it actually will work. The other piece of this is that uh, as, as people are kind of spinning these up, often they'll run into questions, right? And you can solve this a few different ways. You can, you can obviously put in a lot of documentation, but we're really kind of bringing together a lot of different libraries into this uh, boilerplate. And so we can't really document everything. And the documentation, the quality varies across the board. So another way to do this is just to surface the questions somewhere. And we created a Slack community. Uh, Originally, it was actually just for Chain React, our conference. Uh, We were just finding a way to like connect everybody. So we created this community and we, we went back in and like renamed it to just Infinite Red Community after the Chain React thing and, and started inviting people. There's infinite red engineers in there. We, you know, we'll answer questions. Chances are the problems that they're running into, we've run into before ourselves. And so that's really kind of one of the main benefits of a common stack. One of the benefits of React and React Native is that you can do whatever you want, right? Like there's, there's not like this one prescribed way to do it. But that's also a downside because then everybody does it differently. And so with Ignite, we've kind of coalesced around one stack. The original, like I said, had Redux. The new one now has a thing called MobX State Tree, which we really love. And I'd be happy to talk more about that. 
I'm actually going to be giving a couple more talks about Mobic State Tree by uh, Michelle Westrate. He he's created a bunch of cool libraries like Emmer and and uh, Mobex. But yeah, that's uh, that's essentially the new the new boilerplate. We also uh, implemented TypeScript and you know other things that we're actually using at Infinite Red. We we continually iterate on our stack and then bring that out to to Ignite itself. Did Ignite come out of sort of like trying to build spin up these projects within the company and you decided to try to automate it a bit? Is that kind of yeah, totally came about? Uh, yeah, exactly, Dave. Uh, basically, what what was happening so. We started React Native in 2015 when it was pretty much brand new. I think it came out in the spring and we started it in the fall when, when, um, when Android was released. So it was cross-platform. And so we were building these and our engineers were carrying, uh, comparing notes and saying, okay, so how do we do, like, what, what library do we use for this? What library do we use for that? How do you structure your file structure, you know, your folder structure? How do you, um, where do you put your tests? What do you use for tests? Like all these questions come up. There were, I mean, there's, I kid you not, like a hundred questions per app that you're trying to answer <laughs> before you even, like the first two weeks, right? You're just, you're just trying to answer all these Yeah, questions. yeah. And you don't want to go down the wrong path, you know, start using something that everybody's like, oh, you shouldn't have used that because, you know, that, that's been deprecated. Or, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, like. Change so fast. Exactly. Or up, I've never heard of that. And then you get down the, the path and you realize, oh, this isn't actually ready for production or maybe it doesn't work with React Native very well or whatever. So that's uh, that's always a continual like stress point, and so we started looking around for boilerplates, and we didn't find much. We found a few things, but they weren't you know particularly maybe aligned with what we wanted to do. And so actually, Gantt uh, and one of our uh, former engineers, uh, Steve Kellogg, came up with Ignite, the initial version of of Ignite, uh, and we released it as open source because we've always been kind of open source focused. But we we also like found a lot of value internally, and what we found was that it started to shave off one week and then two weeks off of our the front of our projects, and we're we're hearing that from the community as well. This this is shaved at least two weeks, maybe three weeks nice. off the front of our project, but just by making all these little decisions. And the the decisions we've made are safe decisions because we've done it in an app. It's not going to something you know someone's like, hey, I like this library. We should maybe put it into Ignite, even if it's me, you know, CTO, right? <laughs> The answer is cool. We'll put it in once we've proved it in a couple of projects, and uh, because there's a long kind of iteration cycle there, um, it's it, it can't just be like the hype of the moment, right? It has to yeah, actually. Work. That's that's great. I'm gonna say a very predictable quote of myself already. Everybody who knows me already know this is the effect of skin of the game. Mm-hmm. I always say that this is the. First, uh, the, the thing that I believe contributes most to code quality and software, it's you're using it and this is your tool and your tool is building actual products and it's being actually delivered. And yeah. that's like that, that has an effect and you are, you get both the upsides and the downsides of the problems or the benefits that this tool yeah. is, is bringing to you. So this is, probably like the, the single most important uh, feature of, of anything that, that we use in software. So this is really interesting that you are putting this skin in the game filter into what goes into Ignite. Totally. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Lucas. That's, that's exactly, that's a great way to say it. I think uh, a lot of this comes from our background in the Ruby community because we were originally Ruby on Rails developers we did a lot of Ruby. In fact, uh, when there was a system called Ruby Motion that came out in 2012 uh, that allowed us to write 
native apps in Ruby, we all started using it. And that's actually how I met Todd and, and Gant and, and some others from, from our company. And uh, the philosophy within the Ruby community is very much like extract from, from real products. And I think that comes from, from like DHH over there on the Rails side of things. He's, uh, he's a big proponent of, uh, you know, he's the creator of Rails and he, he extracted it from Basecamp, which was their, their web app. So we've been doing the same thing for years, uh, whether, you know, we were working together or not, that was kind of our culture. And then coming together for this, yeah, Ignite came out of basically two projects that we piloted React Native on. We started those in October of 2015, and we released Ignite in like April of 2016. So that basically gave us time to do the projects, learn the things, compare notes, like what worked, what didn't. And then we released the CLI and the boilerplate. We released a brand new CLI a year later and then a new boilerplate a year after that. So we've been kind of just continually iterating on it. Now, the latest boilerplate we've been mostly iterating because we found a stack that works pretty well. And so, you know, we started with A and we went to B and I don't know when we're going to get to C (laughs) for the, I I think we're going to use the the code name Cyberdemon. Mm-hmm. We, we have some ideas and we have an upcoming uh, company retreat where we might might start piloting uh, the, the next one. But again, we have to actually use it in real projects. That's it. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. it seems like that's, that's the way to go. And it seems like when you created Ignite, that was kind of around the time when there was like the explosion of React boilerplates. It was kind of pre-create React app. Mm-hmm. And yep. like, that was always the problem people had. It was like, how do I start, you know, which, which libraries do I want? And what yeah. should my file structure be? And so... It created this funny thing, I think, where everyone would like clone a boilerplate and then get confused and then ultimately make their own and then publish that. And so it's like this this just explosion of like, I'm going to publish the one that I made because I understand this one <laughs> rather than like, I think it maybe it depends on use case too, where like as a, as a, like a consultancy, you're creating, you're spinning up lots of projects. And yeah. whereas maybe some people are just spinning up one project and they're going to work on it for years. Right. So you know, the upfront time to learn the boilerplate versus kind mm-hmm. of cobbling together yeah. something on your own. It's very interesting. I think I have only worked in places where we did not create a lot of products. We were mostly working with like year-long products. So it mm-hmm. was mostly like yeah. transformation. So the boilerplate didn't catch the boilerplate trend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Totally makes sense. I think as a consultancy, we're uniquely positioned to mm-hmm. uh, like experiment a lot and try different things. I mean, recently, so we use uh, a library called React Navigation for our sort of, I guess, in if you're if you come from React Web, it'd be like a routing library, basically. Mm-hmm. But in in mobile, it's called Navigation, and we've used this for quite a while. We we had something else before, but it's like old and and deprecated. So we went to this, and but there's always been this one that was put out by Wix, uh, Wix Engineering, called React Native Navigation. Not that that's confusing at all. <laughs> so one of the benefits of that that other library was that it would actually use the native navigation like widgets underneath the the hood, like the components underneath the hood, so that uh, it would feel more natural. It would feel more native, like like you know when you're swiping back to you know to go back or whatever. It would behave like like the native app, because remember with React Native you're you're sort of marrying the JavaScript side with native views, and so React Navigation was like creating this whole brand new structure. But coming from native 
app development, we knew that there was already a good one. Like I had built a navigation library in native code and I knew that there was a good, there were really good tools there. Mine was mostly just a sort of like a wrapper around it. So React Native Navigation did that. And so we used it on a project to try it out. You know, I asked one of my senior developers, can you trial this? Like you're on a project, let's go ahead and trial this uh, on a project. Well, while we were doing that, React Navigation released a native screens add-on that added what we needed (laughs) under the hood. And uh, our, our experience with React Native Navigation was fine you know it was it was it was okay like it, it did the job and it had those benefits but it also had other trade-offs that weren't as good and so when we compared notes after the project it was like well we got what we needed in react navigation and we don't need to maybe we, we're familiar with it so let's let's stay with that so those are the types of things that we can do as a consultancy that you wouldn't be able to do if you're working on one two three multi-year projects and so I think that's why consultancies actually do really good boilerplates is because of that. If they follow Lucas's rule of skin in the game. <laughs> nice. So you're saying that your engineers, uh, they work on both platforms. They create both web and mobile mm-hmm. uh, products. So one thing I notice is that we need to know a lot about the platform that we are building on top, right? So we are creating React application, but if we're on the web, like in the end, if you're doing something that is production ready, you need to know a lot about like how HTML and CSS and how the browsers work. So I believe it's the same thing for React Native, right? You need to know how, as, as you said here, like you have like the native navigation and stuff like that. So how do you, how do the engineers navigate through these? Because mm-hmm. React seems seems to be actually like the sim- the simplest part of this this puzzle. Yeah, you're totally right. You know, for sure we probably do more mobile than we do web now. We we started as a web shop, but most of our engineers are mostly working on mobile. But we do have uh, some that break off and work on the web side of things. What they find is that the react side's easy. Like switching the react native skills to react web skills, that's not an issue. CSS, for the most part, is pretty similar to the layout system for React Native. Uh, it's it's basically built on the same thing. Uh, React Native uses a system called Yoga, which allows you to use Flexbox to kind of lay out your components and stuff like that. And then almost everything is the same. You're using camel case instead of dashes, but it's it's uh, it's still the same stuff. Usually the difference is in the tooling. It's like you're not really using, you know, like on React Native, you're using Metro and um, the Packager and you're using a bunch of other tools. On web, you might be using Webpack, you might be using you know, Rollup, you might have various other build tools uh, all the way through. And so you're, you're learning that. But it's really interesting because web, in a lot of ways, I guess it kind of helps that we've come from web because we have that familiarity already. But we do have a few engineers that just started with React Native. So uh, we tend to not put them on the web projects as much. Uh, we're big enough, we can kind of pick and choose the people that already have that, that experience. But yeah, I mean, you, you, it's it's sort of like the depth of React Native is quite a bit deeper than on web, but there are differences even on web that you have to learn. And like you said, the, the React side is actually the easiest and it, the skills transfer very, very well. What we've done with web developers going the other way to mobile is we just put them building components that don't touch the native code, which is actually probably 80% of the project anyway. So they can they can do projects for years without ever touching native code. 
But just over the course of time, as they're working with their coworkers who have to jump in and like wrap a native component or something, they'll be curious and they'll jump in and want to, you know, see what are you doing and stuff. And it's not that bad. I mean, yeah, you're dealing with Java and Objective-C or potentially Kotlin and Swift. But, you know, once you've kind of learned one or two programming languages, uh, there are ways to pick up other ones. And so I think that that's, that's helped a lot of people. That's kind of a long and rambling answer to, to the question because it's something that we're, we're still kind of working through. But so far, so good. That's good. It seems like every platform kind of has its own I don't know, native look and feel sort of stuff. I don't have a better word for that. But, but, you know, like the way things are done on web versus like the conventions on iOS versus the conventions on Android or something where like if you're flipping back and forth between platforms a lot, it might be hard to keep all of those conventions in your head like so that you kind of build things the most natural way or whatever. We find that's definitely the case with design. Mm. You know, our design team, we have four designers. They're really great. They're amazing at at mobile design, especially now, because uh, they've been doing it a lot. Most of them also come from web, so they, they've done web. What we find is that we, we do work with a lot of clients who bring their own design team. And uh, usually what that means is they have web designers. It doesn't mean that they come in with a mobile design team. And they're usually fantastic web designers, like really good web designers. But they'll come in and they'll, they'll make certain small decisions uh, along the way that don't make sense for mobile. Even yeah. if they've done mobile responsive web, <laughs> it's right. not quite the not same. Not the same thing, yeah. No, it's not. And then even subtle differences between iOS and Android, although that's actually becoming less and less important. When I started doing mobile in 2011, that was a big deal, like a really big deal. And now mobile users don't really mind, you know, they don't want something to feel like it is iOS on Android, but they don't mind having unified experience across both platforms. It doesn't seem to be an issue anymore. Yeah, it seems like it's coalesced a lot. Like it used to be where like iOS would look like an iOS app and Android would look like Android controls and everything. And now it's kind of like, hey, it's pretty much a web app, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like all mobile. custom. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So some concepts are shared. So you're saying like I'm using like React, right? This is mm-hmm. a big like so component. So it's yeah. gonna be JavaScript most of the time. But you also talked about Mobex, State Tree. Yeah. So this is also like the the state management that you use on all the the platforms? Yeah, that's right. So uh, I'll explain just briefly what they are. So MobX is, uh, I like to think of it as just basically a set of functions to build, to to manage state, but it's very free form. So like it it gives you a lot of capability, but doesn't really tell you how to use it. Not, Not a lot of structure. There's a lot of just really cool things that come out of this. Uh, Michelle, the guy that created it, is just incredibly smart. I had a chance to actually meet him there at React Finland, and he gave a talk there. Uh, really, really smart guy. Uh, he's he's like 10 steps ahead of everybody. <laughs> but yeah, so MobX uh, by itself is actually not that compelling to me. Like, it's okay. It's It's got a really, really cool thing. And if you're as smart as Michelle, you can probably figure it out and do something amazing with it. Mobix state tree basically gives you a bunch of conventions and is, in my mind, it's basically the Redux part of of Mobix. So basically it's like, it makes it more Redux-like. And then there's also a thing called Mobix React, which connects it to React. So those three together is basically what I think of as our state management library. You might call the whole thing Mobix, you might call the whole thing MST, you know, Mobix state tree. But those three together, that's what I'm really talking about when when I talk about Mobix. So you'll, you'll like create your models uh, and your models will be, you can define them with types, which is kind of nice. Uh, you can say, you know, like your ID is an identifier. You can say your name is a string. Your, you know, and we're not talking uh, like 
static types. Like we have TypeScript as well, but these are these are runtime type runtime types, and that allows you to have a barrier right at your a lot of times like API. Uh, your data is coming in, and you're feeding it into your models, and your model will tell you if you have the wrong type. If something com- is coming in, that's the wrong type. And that's been very helpful for us because we're building things a lot of, a lot of times against like client APIs that we don't control. And they say that they're going to provide this, but it's actually that or something like that. And, or it changes. And then we know right away because MobX catches it on the, at the runtime. You get all that for free, basically. That's nice. So, yeah, it's really cool. It also gives you essentially immutability, but not looking like immutability. Because one of the things that I've always kind of not liked about immutable data structures is that in order to update something deep in the tree, it's it's always a pain. Like like going in there and like, like uh, creating... Yeah data structure from everything. Yeah, right? like spreading out the objects five levels deep or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, where the Rubyist in me is like, can I just dot, 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 and then equal something, right? Like just just set it. Right, right, um, right. <laughs> so in MobX state tree, the only place that you can update your models, like the collections of objects or the, the particular models themselves, is within a thing called an action. And the action is basically, it looks like a method on the model. So it's basically like, you call this method on the model and then you can do whatever you want and you can literally like set things just like an object oriented notation. And so you might say this model dot name equals Jamin Holmgren. And now it's set and it will commit that at the end of the action. It'll like, like commit all those changes, which is amazing. It like, it, it just works very, very naturally when you're, when you're using it, like you're just like, I need to make this change. Okay. I'll create an action, set this new property to this new thing. And then I'm done. I move on. They also have things called flows, which are basically sort of like Redux sagas or Redux thunks that allows you to do like side effects and and multiple like asynchronous actions using generator functions. It gives us a story around uh, how to handle asynchronous, you know, side effects and like sending off uh, HTTP requests and things like that. There's other hooks like like after you create the the models and and lifecycle basically, and then MobX React, which is probably the smallest and easiest part that that Michelle had to create, but to me is the the coolest part. <laughs> so Michelle's gonna if he listens to this, he's gonna be like, yeah, well, why are you spending time on that? That was easy. But to me, it's awesome because it basically wires all this up to React in a way that is always pretty much always performant like always performant. You do not have to really think about performance. And you think of it like you're making all these updates or you're doing all these like side effects and things like that. None of that matters. When it changes, it will re-render only the component, only the thing that is actually using that property because it uses observables on the React side. So it wires it up as an observable. It will look at whatever model properties you're consuming inside of your component, like user.name. And if user.name ever changes, it will re-render just that component, just that, just that piece. Oh, that's and awesome. Yeah, so that, that's really sort of the killer feature of all of this. There's a lot of niceties to the rest of it. But where the rubber meets the road for React developers and React Native developers is the fact that you don't have to think about performance. Not, not to the same effect, anyway, with, with your state management. And I'm, I'm going to be giving a talk about this at uh, React Native uh, EU, which is in Poland in a couple weeks here. Actually, I'm not sure when this is coming out. So uh, it's it's coming. Uh, it's in September anyway. So it's going to be amazing. It's going to be uh, you know like I, I I I've never been to Poland. I've never been to React Native EU. I can't wait to be at that conference. And I'm also ex- extremely excited to 
to share about what we've learned about Mobex state tree. We really went that direction because Redux to us had a lot of boilerplate. It had a lot of just sort of like decisions you had to make around performance and you had to really kind of keep keep things in mind. It's fine. Like we built a lot of apps with it and they work fine. You know, there's no problem with it. They're, you can build apps with Redux as long as you want. But when we found MobX, MobX State Tree and, and MobX React, and we put those three together into our kind of way of doing it, it worked out really, really well. There's a little bit of a learning curve uh, and we're going to be releasing some materials to help with that. But we've also found that once people get over that initial learning curve of like a week or so, uh, they become very, very productive. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, The part that you say that when you create those actions, you can just mutate the object, and but it in fact will create like a, a mutable copy. I know he has a, a, a really cool library called Emer. Yes, that uses like JavaScript proxy. Yeah, Emer is amazing. Yeah, right. yes. and we also had an episode with Daishi that has a bunch of hooks, React hooks libraries. They also use this uh, prox techniques. I've started using Emmer in my Redux projects just because like it's it's such a nice little add-on and it's it's it just makes writing the reducer code so much nicer. Mm-hmm. So like I feel like if you if you're gonna stick with Redux, like definitely add Emmer for your own for your own sanity because yeah. yeah, it makes makes writing those immutable updates so much easier. Totally. It kind of brings that that same feeling into into Redux, which is awesome. So I know Michelle recently joined Facebook. I assume that there's probably something going on uh, sort of as far as like ha- how he's uh, interacting with the team there. I'm kind of interested to see what they come up with for sure. It does sound like they're not like the React core team isn't necessarily like, I guess I'm not part of those conversations, but as far as like integrating MobX or anything like that into React, that's not not likely to be the case. I don't think, I think it's it's sort of a, what I'm trying to say is one of the nice things about Redux is that it's very kind of, clear what's going on. And of course, now with React Hooks uh, coming in and React Context that solves some of these problems already, which I guess I should really talk about a little bit because that's going to be part of my part of my next talk as well. Why not just use React Hooks and React Context? And you can to a certain degree here, but like uh, Yana Ivacalio on Twitter recently said, if you want to go down the route of, of using React Hooks, and context, you will eventually rewrite Redux, but poorly. <laughs> yeah, right. So this is, uh, it's, it's about performance and it's about some other things that kind of come with the decision to use context and hooks. Now, I don't get me wrong. I love hooks and I love context and we are moving that direction. We are going to be using, we are going to be using hooks and context wherever possible. 
And there are ways to create hooks that work with uh, MobX state tree. And so actually I already have, I've, I've uh, done some experiments on some side projects with uh, using hooks and MobX state tree. And what MobX state tree would bring to that conversation would be the performance side of it. You're not having to recreate Redux anymore within, you know, context and hooks, but you can still use context. You can still use hooks. You can use local state with hooks. You can, uh, you can use, you know, use effect, which is amazing. Like use, use effect is just blows my mind. All those things are still totally, totally possible. And what the hooks and the, the use effect stuff does is replace the class components. And then you use like, like your own, like I, I wrote a, a hook called use root store. So you can actually, the store that you're keeping kind of your like global state in, which you don't have to do, like you can have multiple stores if you want. That's another benefit of using Mobic state tree, whatever, you don't need one like source of truth. But you can, you can just say, you know, root store, const root store equals use root store. And it'll bring it in through context. And just just start using it, which is which is awesome. That's kind of uh, where we're at on things because I I do love the idea of using hooks and stuff like that. But yeah, going back to Immer, uh, it's possible that they're going to be in- integrating some of that, some of the lessons from that, or possibly Immer itself into React. There's such great things uh, that kind of come out of that 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 we're, I'm excited to see where it goes from there. So regarding your comment on using hooks and uh, and rewriting Redux, this is so true. It's uh, people. Uh, it seems that oh my god, this that, that there is a new there's a new tool. We need to understand like how low level or high level are the tools that that we're seeing in front of us, right? One thing people don't think about is not Redux itself. Redux is like couple of lines almost of code. But the React Redux, what glues, right, the connect, the map state to props, that React Redux has a bunch of code with a bunch of edge cases that when you use context directly, like you're 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 hitting all of those edge cases. So your application is like super slow. You don't know, oh, it's much simpler now. But then you understand, oh, okay, so I'm passing a function. The function changes. So let me create another context for this patch. And then you end up with a, a much more complicated version of, of Redux <laughs> that is yeah, like, yeah. There, there has no community and no documentation because it's... <laughs> <laughs> with a bunch of bugs and you need to... Right deliver a product. So this is really interesting, trying to understand, okay, so I have a new feature, I have a new tool. Is it actually like in the same like high level of the tool that I believe this is going to replace? Yes or no? So yeah, that's the same thing. I I believe the hooks is is a really great paradigm, but using context and use state like purely, it's too low level for what we actually expect of a state management uh, solution for a big application. You're exactly right. And I, I'm curious to know if the React team is interested in taking on doing higher level tools for state management or if they're totally fine with the community coming up with their own solutions like Redux. And uh, although I guess that was that was also sort of a, a push in it. But, but yeah, the, like the, the, the idea of doing whatever you want, MobX, there's other ones as well. You can use like Apollo, for example, and, and do GraphQL and stuff like that. And that's another, another piece of this puzzle. So I'm not sure what the internal team is, is you know, what their intentions are. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see what comes to that. It seems like that's, that's been a certainly like a cry of the community or maybe, maybe, the, maybe more the, the newcomers in the community. But, yeah. but like, you know, I want one, one blessed answer that I can just use for state management. Why are there seven of them? And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, that's why we were able to write the boilerplate and get some traction with it because right. that's what people, that's what people new to the React Native community wanted. And oh, one of the things that we, you know, uh, Davia talked about, like uh, the idea of people would come in and it wouldn't be quite right, so they create their own boilerplates and stuff like that. We actually encourage that the, the CLI itself allows for multiple boilerplates, and you can use your own. You can bring your own pretty easily. We even have like a boilerplate generator where it'll generate just a kind of an empty boilerplate for you and then you just edit it and then like publish it somewhere and you can you can use it. It's a um, boilerplate of boilerplates. <laughs> really cool. I know it gets a little gets a little crazy <laughs> when you're doing like dot EJS dot EJS and you have to <laughs> you're like par- parsing your your templates to create a template. <laughs> Funny. Yeah, so Another comment on this, uh, if React is going to, just a side note, I think, to be honest with you, that the fact that they don't make a lot of these choices is what is making React so long-lived. Mm-hmm. Because things are coming, and like, I, I remember React before Redux, it was like mm-hmm. one thing, and then comes the Redux, and it's another thing. Now the Redux is kind of like leaving the, mm-hmm. as only like this other, like if React chose to, 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 to have Redux inside of it, I think React would be like pushed together. And then yeah. like the other the other framework that would be really similar, but with that change on state yeah. would like feel the, maybe that's a, a good, it's bad for when you need answers mm-hmm. as a beginner and mm-hmm. everything. Like sometimes you're just like, how do I start? How do you teach someone who's beginning React? Yeah. Like, where do, is it even, even like, okay, so let's start with create React app. Even that mm-hmm. is already like a little bit overwhelming. Like what are all these, mm-hmm. it's, it's, that yeah. is already a little bit uh, overwhelming. So, yeah, but maybe that's why it's being like long lived. It's a great point. You know, we used to do Ember. And Ember baked in a lot of things. Like they said, you should be using this for your API. Uh, like like even making API decisions. Now you could have adapters that allowed you to change to other things. But I remember the story with Ember was almost always, and, and I loved working with Ember. So, you know, don't get me wrong. It was actually a fun framework to work with. But the story with Ember was always the core team's working on this. And okay, you know, they were very transparent. They said it would ship on this date or whatever, but we needed to get software done now. <laughs> And so we would end up using either half-baked solutions or the old solution, which we knew we'd have to upgrade later, which it just felt like the, the speed of iteration was very slow. And it's almost like Ember was too early. Like you almost needed like a React to go in there and explore and experiment and get all these cool solutions like sussed out. And then later for Ember to come in and say, okay, now we're going to be like the whole framework from start to finish. And we've made all these decisions based on what we've learned from React. Because like now Ember's you know, bringing in like a bunch of the the learnings from from React, the, the the React community and React core team itself. So the speed of iterations so so much faster on React because you know React core team releases context, and you know the next week someone's got a proof of concept out there using it for something, uh, and then other people are putting stuff out there, and then what what gets traction and what you know how does this like it's it's just incredible. Like it's hard to keep up actually. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it really. Is. It's interesting the the sort of difference between convention over configuration and like 
you know, cobble together the, the, the specific tools you need. Because I, I think Ember was, Ember always seemed like it was very inspired by Ruby on Rails. And totally was. it seems like the JavaScript community is sort of like the opposite of the Rails community. And that like, that like strong sense of this is the convention and we're going to follow that convention just hasn't really, never really took off in, in JavaScript. Maybe it hasn't yet. Maybe it will someday, but certainly seems like people are always trying new things and, and totally inventing new APIs and new ways of thinking about things. And it's really interesting, but it's also, yeah, it's, it's a lot of change. You never know when it's where it's going to land. And Yeah, that's true. In the Ruby community, there was, there was a lot of, I, I think you're, you're exactly right, actually, but the, there was, there was a lot of experimentation at the edges, but the core thing, everybody wanted convention for sure. Like the, this is how you do it. And that, you know, DHH and the core team were more than happy to make those decisions for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, feel like, it feels like maybe the, maybe the domain was more well understood at that point. Like backend maybe. had been around for a while. Like CRUD was a thing. That's true. CRUD wasn't like, like a thing Rails invented. And they and, had to go through their own growing pains too, because there was like, Merv or Merv or something that was invented by I can't remember exactly, but basically there was a split of the Ruby community at one point, and Rails was still kind of the big one. But there's this other newcomer coming out that had really cool ideas, like way cooler than than Rails. And there's like this kind of public fight because that's what the Rubyists decided to do. And then and then they had the big merge between the two, so they actually like resolve their differences and merge the two into one again rails like framework and said let's let's move forward with this that was rails 3 and i actually came in at rails like 3.1 so i kind of missed all that drama and i came in and i'm like well this is cool like this and it was it was it was amazing that they were able to like incorporate these cool ideas in there and then from there they actually had a lot of participation from outside the core team like like uh, helping to drive the, the api forward so that was a problem because like if there's one central authority that needs to make all the decisions and they don't see the benefit of something, then you're going to end up with conflict versus if, if anybody can make their own thing and kind of go their own way, you, you have less conflict, but you have more confusion. Yeah, I see that happening a lot. Like with Elm, I was following Elm really closely a couple of years ago and Elm is very fortunate to have like one very smart person design (laughs) the the person making the calls is like a various but it's still like one person yeah and there's only like so so much time so the the decision seems to all be amazing but they take time and sometimes the impact with in, in your applications is still not very nice so it's uh always uh yeah, it's it's interesting because constraints help us have more freedom, right? If if some decisions are made for us, it seems that we this is not use our cognitive load. So let, let's use our our cognitive power to to solve other parts. So the interesting, probably for you in your case, you have this boilerplate that makes this decision like, what am I going to use for state management? Yeah. And then you start thinking right away of okay, so how am I going? My product going, which are the important, yeah. important questions, right? So we yeah. put these constraints on ourselves, but it's just like in life, freedom. Right? Like sometimes you're not happy with the constraints. Mm-hmm. What do you do? The interesting thing about these boilerplates and stuff that happen in the JavaScript world is that you still can change one thing or another if you think that constraint in particular hits you really hard. In the Elm community, it's like, okay, you just lost 
I don't know, this functionality forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so pros and cons, complicated to, but I definitely understand the benefits of constraints. When you have yeah. too much power in your hands, when you're building software, it seems that you're not using your time wisely with important questions. So that's why conventions are sometimes even second best ones. Yeah. yeah. I prefer to have like a set of second. That's why I love like prettier. Yeah. Like sometimes <laughs> I, sometimes I hit save, prettier change my file and I say like, <laughs> oh my God, this is terrible. But <laughs> like one, one every 30 times I say like, who chose that? <laughs> but... But then, like, when I go home, I was like, thank God I don't need to think about that problem anymore. Even though sometimes I say, like, this is ugly as F. Yeah. A former employee once told me, because I was kind of, at the time, sort of going through a phase where I was obsessed with making everything better or the best, really. And he was like, you know what? Sometimes standard is is better than better. <laughs> that's, and it's, that's, it's pretty yeah. true. Yes. It's just like the Steve Jobs clothing. You say, like, I don't choose. I just get it. <laughs> yeah, it's like I just put it, like, when I wake up. And it's, like, yeah. one less problem of the day. If you think about it, it's like, mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. Like, it's it's good that Steve Jobs had that extra seven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. With the community, we we get a lot of feedback, you know, which help, helps us kind of guide the evolution of the the boilerplate, we get help, like fixing bugs. People are really good about that. And uh, we also, it services like the pain points uh, that people are, because are, if we keep hearing the same question over and over and over, it's like, we need to document this better. So, you know, the community has a ton of value in that way. Uh, they give us energy, they give us feedback, they they help their advocates, they're, 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 they write um, write code for us. There's a lot of really amazing people within the community. and But I, to go back to your point, I think that one of the benefits of standardization is that we're encountering the same problems because we're all using the same stack, mostly, I guess. And uh, so people are like, how do I structure a MobX state tree model? This was actually a real question just yesterday. How do I structure a MobX state tree model and then go fetch like a giant amount of data? <laughs> I don't want my app to just freeze, right, while I'm waiting for it. And so one of my developers had had some some suggestions for them. I didn't know because I'm CTO and I don't code every day in client projects. I mostly work on our open source. So, uh, but they, you know, Ryan Linton, uh, one of our senior developers, went in there and gave them some advice. And then our developers can also ask questions in there and say, "How? What? What have you run into when you've done this or that?" Because we're a consultancy, we're spinning up projects all the time, but we're not working like like on three-year projects, and some of the people in the community are. So they've, they have a different perspective. That's the problem with having one person in charge. They may be incredibly smart. They may be incredibly uh, able to see multiple contexts and, and see way further ahead than all of us, but ultimately they're never going to have all the different contexts that, that the community has. Uh, and I read a great book recently called The Culture Code, which talks about the idea of like uh, teams that work really well together with just sort of average intelligence or, or capability or skill or experience or something that work really well together tend to beat uh, teams of superstars that aren't really working together. 
it's just it's just like consistently proven out like that the the collaboration comes up with something way better we have a core principle at infinite red called creative collaboration or is it collaborative creativity regardless same thing <laughs> uh, it's uh the creativity we're looking for isn't the type that kind of goes away into a cave and then comes out with the grand reveal like swoops it off sort of you know, madman style and says, here's my amazing thing that I just created. Whenever we do that, you know, it, it just doesn't work out well. So like working together, getting early feedback, mm-hmm. um, being able to incorporate that. Also like the skill of, of learning to give like empathetic and kind feedback and, you know, like also adding energy instead of subtracting energy from, from someone's like idea that's hard to do it's actually very hard to do because they might be doing something that you're like i don't see the value of this but they do so like give them some energy and see you know give them some nudges here and there and see where it goes because you may be surprised or if not then you'll learn something from it and you'll all learn something from it and you can move forward with something else so those are all pieces that we that we encourage at infinite red this this idea of collaboration rather than individual brilliance that's amazing yeah that's great This episode is sponsored by GitLab Commit. GitLab's inaugural user event brings together the GitLab community to connect, learn, and inspire. Speakers will showcase the power of DevOps in action through strategy and technology decisions, lessons learned, behind-the-scenes looks at the development lifecycle, and more. Learn how to innovate the future of software development by registering today. GitLab Commit Brooklyn, September 17th, and GitLab Commit London, October 9th. You can find it at devchat.tv slash GitLab Commit. So I think um, maybe that was a good time to wrap up and go to picks. Lucas, do you awesome. want to go first? Get any picks this week? All right. So I have. I found a YouTube channel of Jen Simmons. It's called The Layout Land. And oh my God, how did I miss this all these years? So Jen Simmons, she works for Mozilla. And she started creating these videos there. I think they're mostly in the beginning talking about CSS Grid. And it's the best explanation of CSS Grid, but it's also like the best explanations of CSS as a whole and of web design. It's very, very like, there's a lot of inspiration for uh, design and web design. And also there is an extra element of, she speaks so well, it's good to just watch, you know, those videos, it's like, mm, I like to watch this video. The way she explains things, it's like so well explained. It's a good, so let yeah. me, so yeah, so go I've, watch. I've a few of those, like Jen, Jen Simmons, yeah, that YouTube channel is awesome, definitely. Yeah, she's awesome. So, the videos but, are like very well made too, like she's sitting by this fireplace and it's very peaceful. Oh my God, it's so relaxing. Yeah. Check this out. That, that <laughs> was, awesome. yeah, she, she'll like cut to visuals when, when she needs to explain something visual. It's it's. There was one comment in one of her videos saying, like, Jen Simmons is the ASMR of front-end dev, <laughs> which, which is funny. But, yeah, so I chose this particular link, which is CSS Grid, like your Jen Cheat Code. I don't know how to pronounce his name. But it's really inspirational of both, like, what we can do and, like, using a tool to, to enable better design decisions and... I don't know. It's been a while. I don't work with React Native, but I hope that Yoga starts incorporate some CSS Grid because it is awesome. Cool. So yeah, my pick for the week. All right. So for mine, I've got uh, two. One one I came across is called DevURLs.com, but it's pretty much just like a 
kind of a um, aggregator of a bunch of different dev blogs and hacker news and stuff. So it's like, it's like some individual blogs and some some medium blogs and CSS tricks and just a bunch of different things. So sort of interesting, just has a, a lot of different dev articles on there to browse through. And another one that came across a couple of days ago was this article by um, by Lindsay. I'm forgetting her last name. Sorry, Lindsay. So she has an article called Reducing Motion to Improve Accessibility. And I know we talked about this in a past episode about kind of reducing animations and stuff. So there's this prefers reduced motion media query. And uh, it's, a, it's a good article. It's a good, it's a good in-depth tutorial on like how, how to actually use that prefers reduced motion query and how to turn off animations and stuff. Check that out. So Jamin, do you have any picks this week? Yeah, so I found a new library that I'm very intrigued. I want to I want to check it out. I haven't done a lot with it yet, but it looks really cool. It's called React Node GUI and it basically allows you to create with React sort of React native-ish, but it allows you to create like desktop apps with uh, React not in an electron way, not like in a web view, but it actually generates actual real views. And so this is very intriguing to me. I looked at the examples. They look super cool. We don't do a lot of desktop apps at uh, Infinite Red, but we, you know, we do have like uh, Reactatron, which is an Electron app. And there are a lot of different desktop apps that, that could be used. And I don't know. It just looks really cool to me. The examples look really cool. It's still in progress being developed, but they have a few, few apps out already. And it's, uh, it's very intriguing to me. Awesome. That looks cool. Electron is cool, but it's it feels very bloated, and so mm-hmm. anything that we can get, we yeah. can, like this one uses, uses the you one uses Qt widgets is yes, it does. It uses Qt five. That's right. Oh, uh, so nice. it uses uh, so it makes it CPU and memory efficient, basically. Yeah, so, uh, yeah you're really using like native. Yeah, pretty much native stuff. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. I used Qt in a past life. C plus plus was pretty good. Nice. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Cool. I remember the pointers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and all the crashing. Great. <laughs> all right. So I think that about wraps it up for this week, this episode of React Roundup. Thanks, Jamie, for joining us. Thank you, guys. I, this was really fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Bye. I'll see everyone next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>